When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. You wait months for a guest to talk with authority about scary movies, then two come along at once. Following Jordan Peele's fine turn in our previous episode, we're delighted to welcome Eli Roth to the show this time around. Eli is a writer, director, actor and producer who came to prominence with films such as Cabin Fever and Hostel. While much of his work is not for the faint-hearted, his latest project, The House with a Clock on Its Walls, follows the great Spielberg tradition of frightening family fun. Eli is also an encyclopedia when it comes to score, to the point at which we couldn't source half the music he refers to. But no matter, as you'll hear, he delivers quite the lesson nonetheless. Before we head to Score School, a word from our good friends at Beer52.com, whose offer of a free case of craft beer is still up for grabs. Beer52 is the world's most popular monthly craft beer discovery club, searching out exclusive small batch craft beers from the world's greatest breweries and bringing them back for their members. This month, Beer52 has enlisted some of the best craft beer brewers from the UK and across Europe to bring you the Citizens of Everywhere case. Europe's given us so much over the years, booze cruises, exotic sausages, a royal family, but perhaps its greatest gift has been beer and breweries. Now we love drinking this stuff and our homegrown craft brewing talent loves working alongside their European counterparts. That's why Beer52 and Ferment have teamed up with the awesome Citizens of Everywhere project to bring you world-class collaborations showcasing the very best of UK-EU relations. Whatever may come of Brexit, we're excited to show that the craft beer community is as excited as ever by its future of brewing and drinking beer together. Try the one-of-a-kind Citra Gazzetti, which is a collaboration brew from Fine Ales from the UK and Beerbliotech from Sweden. Or why not enjoy a mango milkshake IP by Welsh outfit Tiny Rebel, or perhaps Mount Celeb from France. There's something for everyone's taste, whether you already love craft beer or simply want to try it out for the very first time. And you can get your first case for free. Just pay £5.95 postage. That's eight incredible craft beers, ferment magazine and a snack delivered with next day shipping. There's no minimum commitment. You can just take the free case, try the beers and see what you think. It's not for you. You can pause or cancel any time. All you have to do to take advantage of this offer is head to beer52.com forward slash sound. That's the word beer followed by the numbers 5 and 2.com forward slash sound. And so to Eli and the house with a clock in its walls, which was scored by his frequent collaborator, Nathan Barr. Now, there is a fabulous story behind Nathan's work on the film, which Eli will tell you all about in just a moment. Suffice to say, our first cue, quite different around here, is a fair reflection of the sonic tone the pair of them were aiming for.
Eli, welcome to Soundtracking. I don't know if Thank anyone's you. told you what we're going to be... Not a word. I mean, it kind of says in the title. It's a little giveaway, almost. Yeah, I, know. I had a hunch. <laughs> Congratulations on uh, the house with clocks, because I outed my 10-year-old, and we had the best time. Oh, what did your 10-year-old think? He absolutely loved it. That's he great. Laughed. Ten's the age. When I was 10, yeah. the movies that I saw in the theater were the the Amblin movies. Like yeah, Exactly. Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Poltergeist, Gremlins, Goonies, but also Time Bandits was a huge oh, one wow. for me. Very big influence on me. It's great because you want to scare them, like not terrify them. Yeah. But I loved being, like I loved in things like the Goonies, like the Fratelli family were utterly Very terrifying. scary. And the, by the way, the first 20 minutes of E.T. is very yeah. scary. We, we know now E.T. is friendly, but as a kid, that was freaky. And there's a great joy in being scared, especially when you're a kid. It's yeah. so much fun. And the key is you don't want to traumatize children. You want to do something that scares them, but gets it's almost like a gateway movie. This yeah. is the movie, if you love scary movies, you bring your kids to, and it gets them into scary movies. And you can't start your kids out on Hostel 2 or Texas Chainsaw. <laughs> you need to ease them into it. So the fun is, um, is giving them that thrill. And that was Spielberg's advice to me was make it scary. And I remember when I went to see those early Spielberg films and the early Amblin movies, they were very very scary but they also had that sense of magic and wonder and adventure and i felt like the kids scary pg movie felt like a lost art form to me yeah and i really wanted to make a movie like that for like one from my childhood and all those films that you mentioned music was an incredibly big part of it and Mm -hmm. a fantastic number of composers be Mm -hmm. it um jerry goldsmith jerry goldsmith john williams yeah dave gruson for goonies as well Uh you know yeah. Just this wonderful collection, and it was such an important part of those films. You think of those films, and you also think about the music. Yeah, you think of dun 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 dun. dun, dun. You, know, you yeah. think of E. T. You think of yeah. Back to the Future and all that Gremlins, stuff. all that yeah. the mischievous music in Gremlins. So when you were thinking about the music for the house with clocks and swaps, where did you start, and how did you? You know, Nathan, you've worked with, you know, up, many times, many yeah. times and, and going back to work with him and the conversations that you had about how it would sound as a film. Nate Barr is an amazing composer. I mean, he's so accomplished. On Cabin Fever, he probably played 40 different instruments. Well, Literally. Hostel, we had an orchestra, but Nate has, I mean, he bought 
a glass harmonica to record. Like he's like, that's what I want to use. He's like Benjamin Franklin invented this, and I bought one. It was like what? <laughs> so he's been, like all these crazy sounds. He he collects rare instruments and restores them, and he can play all of them. He's really a, a prodigy. like for a vacation he'll go to Mackinac Island in Michigan and bring cellos when there's no cars and he just plays you know string quartets concert concertos and this is you know he plays chamber music like that's what he does for hobby in addition to diving with sharks so we really bonded over that <laughs> but we talked about the score for this and and both of us said we have to come up with a new sound you know cabin fever was a particular sound hostel was a particular sound hemlock grove which he's emmy nominated for was a particular sound last exorcism and we we wanted to do something that didn't feel or sound like anything we had done before um we didn't want to imitate john williams but the music that i've been listening to a lot lately is bruno Coulet. i okay. love his score in Coraline, and he has a, a number of different scores that are really really beautiful and haunting and creepy and elegant so i wanted something that was closer to some john williams but really like danny elfman bruno Coulet. that was yeah. that was the sound template said you know i bought the fox wurlitzer and i was like what is that he said well this is the probably he's like for music collectors it's the most famous organ in the world in 1928 every silent theater there were thousands of these organs and they weren't just pipe organs they had 1140 pipes but all these different instruments that it could play like so when someone rang a doorbell you'd push a button and it was actually a, a buzzer that was a musical buzzer wow. or wind chimes when you'd see wind and a shh, like all these different you know if there was a horn that if a car went by <laughs> so you it was all controlled 
from these different keyboards and pedals and you're pushing buttons and live scoring, not just scoring, but doing the sound effects yeah. in a way, it's the whole but sound musically, department. the entire live for every showing of the movie. Then when sound came in, they were literally thrown out. They were just taken and thrown in the street and melted down for like the war. That's what happened to all of them, except maybe there's 10 left in the world. And Fox Studios took one and they had it and it took up seven rooms. It recorded, I think, Patton, The Sound of Music, Star Trek, The Motion Picture, like so many composers have used this organ. And 25 years ago, it was boxed up. They just packed it up because it was taking up too many buildings and no one was using it. And there's, you know, electronics, but it sounds one of a kind. So Nate had this idea five years ago. Not only is he going to restore this organ, he's going to build his own studio. So he takes all of his money and builds a 7,000 square foot recording studio that's his called Bendrika. And he has the Wurlitzer there and he built these rooms and spent five years restoring it. So he said, you know, Eli, we've got, I have the organ, the Fox organ. He goes, this is actually perfect because we can use it in the movie. And there's just nothing. It, it's like you, you hear this organ. It just sounds so magnificent. It's like it's from another world. It just takes you back to another time. kind of a, a timeless quality to the film that we wanted to have i don't know if this is actually going to work on you know on the score but and yeah the score will be out but so you can see like these are this is the organ here and you can see him playing and it plays the drums you see those are your foot pedals that are playing the drums oh my god it's incredible does he do tours i want to go and visit the organ well if you you know <laughs> by the way yeah you should <laughs> Wow. And it's blowing the wind. Yeah, I mean. I imagine he had to learn how to use it as well. Do you know what I mean? Because there's a lot going on there. There's so much going on. No, I mean, you have to be a music nerd to even understand how to play this so thing. So many buttons and pedals. Yeah, so there's so many buttons. Yeah, and then it's in all these different rooms, and there are different compressors. Then he takes me upstairs, and these are, that's the it. The pipes. The pipes. There's 1,140 pipes. It takes up three rooms. I mean, that's got to be a, a complete bastard to mic up. It took him, well, it's, he, he knows how to do it. He built the studio. He spent five years doing this. So our movie, The House of the Clock and Its Walls. Oh, wow. You hear that sound? We're the first movie in 25 years that's used this. And, and it's never sounded quite like this. All the different... I mean, he, he'll show you the inner workings. These are all... See, these are all the different instruments it plays. That's the... You're inside the organ there. Looks pristine as well. It's it is. Been he's, he's remarkably he preserved. And he rebuilt. That's like if there's a fire truck or an alarm, he can play these different. Yeah, you probably can't get it on there. Do the roll simple. 
Yeah, like that's all controlled by the organ. The drums. I mean, the, wow. the, and these were all, there were thousands of these. That's what's so amazing. It's just a few pipes. I love that but the sound of it is chosen just. to do this. That's I mean, it's just scary, magic. It? It's, and look, he built this beautiful Art Deco studio. So, yeah. Once I heard that, I just thought, there's nothing in the world that sounds like this. Yeah. It's a lost sound. And we have it. So let's do the entire end credits, taking the different themes of the movie yeah. and do like a suite of all the different scores and different parts and different, emo you know, take people on this emotional journey. And once Nate played it for me, it was so beautiful that I then did uh, Edward Gorey style animation for the end credits to go with the organ. It's just, and I, and I just want people sitting in the theater just listening to this beautiful concert. It's really incredible what he did. five years to do this and films take a long time from when the first conversation starts to when we see them as film fans on the screen but whilst you're making this film and knowing that you have this incredible thing that's going to accompany it and be part of it did that help you in terms of a director and tone and well and that he side told me about it but yeah. it wasn't built yet so okay. i really had no comprehension yeah. of what he was talking about I just trusted him and I took his yeah. word for it and I understood the references and the organ is part of the movie. really came to life was in the Nickelodeon scene because yeah. you could score all of that Nickelodeon music with this organ and it felt period correct.
I'm very conscious of music. I listen to a lot of soundtracks and music, and kind of while I'm directing the movie, I'm pulling out my selects for editing. So I'm listening to a lot of the Bruno Coulet music and a lot of different scores and just kind of making playlists Mm -hmm. of different songs that when I start editing the movie, I know I'm going to cut this scene to that song. So for example, like I've started, I used to download stuff. Now I kind of use Spotify. And this is while I'm shooting, uh, you know, House of the Clock. You know, I was listening to this one, the Bruno Coulet's Marie Curie score. I just kind of love this. I love this. And I thought maybe this is him on the bus. Maybe this is, is this him arriving? So like when I'm driving to set, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm kind of hearing this European sound and thinking of the tone of the movie. I watched a lot of Jean-Jacques Beignet, Betty Blue. Yeah. I love the Gabriel Yared score for Betty Blue. So I, and then you so the, this kind of stuff that others. Oh, I love that. The, the music's almost forming the pictures in your head. Yeah. So when, you, so when you're sitting there like that, for me, you know, when you find that song, Beautiful. Yeah, this is Bruno Coulet from um, Journal d'une Femme de Chamba. Yeah, Journal from, Journal of a Chambermaid. Um, and so when I'm thinking about like him coming into New Zebedee and him on the bus and everyone's like, "You're making a scary," and, like this kind of this thing feels like a kid approaching, going to a haunted house, going into the unknown, something yeah. strange, something might be dangerous or. He's in the house. So you, you just have these. And then I heard this song. Like, I just started listening to They Might Be Giants for some reason. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why. Like, I, I just, for some reason, I hadn't heard them. And then I started listening to the song Istanbul. And I would play this on set and it just kind of gets the crew going. You're like, everyone just kind of gets in a mood. And there's something about it that feels like 1940s. You know, they're just kind of, feels period appropriate. And I thought maybe this would be cool for the end credits. Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, now Constantinople, been a long time gone. Constantinople, now it's Turkish delight on a moonlit night. Every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul, now Constantinople, so if you've a date in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul. Even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say. People just liked it better that way. So take me back to Constantinople. No, you can't go back to Constantinople. Been a long time gone. Constantinople, why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks. Istanbul. But really, this one, yeah, this, the Marie Curie Bruna Coulet. This I kind of had on repeat. So as I'm driving to set in the morning. Yeah. You know, you just sit and you listen to this and you just start seeing it. And you sort of know what you're doing. So I have those playlists for different scenes. And it really it really helps. The music, I'm a very musically inclined person. Yeah. And I'm studying classical piano and I played guitar. And I basically, I listen to soundtracks pretty much that's what I listen to. Probably more so than contemporary music or pop music or hip-hop or rock or anything. I really just listen to soundtracks. Because they just take me to another place and they really let my mind wander and I see the imagery. And if you can kind of score it beforehand, you can shoot the scene and then you have something to temp it with. The great thing now is Spotify is I'll get the link of that song and send it to Nate and send it to my editor and go, cut the scene with this. And I go, Nate, what do you think of this? this? This to me feels like the right mood. This is the right balance.
sometimes when we speak to composers, they have a, a slight bugbear sometimes where directors cut to temp music and, and they go, if you can give me something like this, that would be great. Yeah, that happened to Christopher Young on Spider-Man. That was the story where, where Sam Raimi was temping it with Danny Elfman music and he's going to make it sound like that, make it sound like that, and to the point where Christopher Young was like, just, if that's really what you want, use it. Use that. Yeah. Because otherwise it's plagiarism. And I'm not really creating anything. I don't know that for a fact. That was the story I heard. So it's hard. Sometimes you find that perfect piece of score and you do fall in love with it. But for me, it's like with an actor, if I don't like what they're doing or I don't think it's right or I don't think they're there yet, I'll make them do it again. And that's my job is to push everyone and be the annoying voice going, come on, come on, come on, come on. No, we can do it. We can do better. We can do better. It's got to be, mm, it's not right. Mm, I don't know. Mm. Like, you know, you make that sound and, and people generally want to please. And if they're professional, they won't take it personal. So it's like with my cinematographer, my editor, if I think something isn't quite nailing it, yeah. I'll tell them. And sometimes what I usually do, to be fair, is Nate will send me the cues. I'll watch it. And then I won't have any reaction. I'll let it sit for 24 hours and then listen to it again and then listen to it again. I'll listen to it about 10 times before I jump in. Sometimes you don't have that luck. You know, you just have to give me notes right away. But I'll usually listen to it over and over and over so I get used to it. But if something isn't landing emotionally, I try to direct it. Instead of going, make it sound like the tap, I go, this is the moment I feel like we're missing. The scene is really building to this. But here, I feel like we're getting a little ahead of the character, but we want to feel a little bit afraid for him. Or And sometimes something's just like, mm, it's not scary enough. Or I'll, sometimes I'll go, I can't even explain why, but it's not working. Yeah. But listen to the temp and just whatever the temp did is working. So I don't say make it sound like that. I go, it's having a different emotional effect. And Nate and I have known each other for 15 years now, and he's very fast, and he'll just redo it. How did you guys start working together? How was the start of that working We started... Nate and I started through my producer on Cabin Fever is a woman named Lauren Mays, and she had made a movie called Briar Patch, and Nate scored it. And Nate, again, on Briar Patch played all the instruments, had this really, really beautiful southern gothic string sound. It's kind of swamp music. It was, it was fantastic. I loved, loved his score. Actually, the same DP, Scott Keevan, went on to shoot Cabin Fever. So I kind of poached the Briar Patch crew. <laughs> and we just really got along. Yeah. And now he's, you know, he scores the Americans. and He's doing a lot of stuff. But I, I feel like it's funny because in person we joke about this, that for a long time Nate looked like he was 15 years old. Like he just looks like a kid. <laughs> he doesn't anymore. But so people would be like, wait, that's the composer? You know, you picture your composer looking like, I don't know, whatever you imagine a composer looks like. Einstein and they, in my Yeah, Einstein oh. or something. <laughs> yeah. That's what they all look like. Or Beethoven or something. Yeah. And then and then they see Nate Barr and he looks like a kid in jeans and a t-shirt. But he's this kind of this mad genius. And I'm really, really proud. You know, I'm really proud of the score that we did together. I think it's something that both of us were ready to do. I think yeah. we were both ready to prove ourselves on a bigger stage and do something that I think, I mean, I think it's Oscar worthy. I think it's a magnificent score.
imagine that on set you watch this the the film and the the chemistry and the fun that Jack and Kate are having in particular is infectious to watch. I, I imagine that was a lot of fun to, uh, well, if you had to direct it, to be honest, because it's lovely when those those things happen on screen with two people. It's just, yeah, it's great. You just sit back. It's yeah. great, you know, as a director, to have really the two best in the business hmm. as your leads. I mean, I think that Kate is like our Meryl Streep or Judy Dench. I mean, there's only one of her in the world, and there's just no one at her level and she can do anything. anything and and nobody knows how funny she is she's a freaking goofball she's so <laughs> funny loves horror movies super into evil dead like stuff you wouldn't expect <laughs> and jack black jack's an amazing dramatic actor you watch his performance in richard linkletter's film bernie he's yeah. brilliant in that movie and jack to me is our generation's robin williams he can do dead poets and awakenings and goodwill hunting but he could also do mrs doubtfire and Jumanji, yeah. and he's brilliant. And I think that Jack brings out the best comedy in Kate, and Kate brings out the best drama in Jack. And there's such love and respect between the two of them that you really just get this magic on screen. And it's nice when you have actors that are like, you don't have to shoot them separate, you just shoot them together and just lo- watch them. It's just a pleasure to watch them. We, we had a great time on set. And the boy, Owen Vaccaro, is just oh, amazing. Wow. And he brings the energy, and he is funny, and he's always laughing, and he always is a great story. I mean, just everybody, the whole Kyle MacLachlan, Renee Goldsberry, just everyone in the cast brought this fantastic, fantastic energy to set, going, let's do something special. Let's make the kind of movie like we used to see when we were kids. Yeah, it was easy to find him. You know, it's such an important part of the puzzle. For the I film. mean, for me, I was when well, we had Jack and Kate, that was a big thing. And then I thought, all right, we need the house, and we need the kid. <laughs> Found a house, and was like, thank God. And then Owen Vaccaro, first day of casting, no walks way. in. I was like, wow, I think we're done. <laughs> and I thought, is this, wow. was this too easy? Something went wrong. So then I'd see a bunch of other kids. And then we chemistry read Owen, just so everyone was sure. But yeah. I was like, no, day one, Owen walked in. He's probably the third person. I was like, no, it's the kid. He's funny. He's dramatically great. He's got the depth. Let's see how he pairs up with Jack. And he felt vulnerable. He had the vulnerability. I wanted to feel scared for this kid. Some kids were amazing actors. They're a little too tall. You know, they like were pubescent, so they just didn't look that threatened by being in a haunted house. Owen still has this little kid innocence of like, you can tell he's scared, misses his mom, and it's in a big spooky house. Like, you just want to give him a hug and protect him. I think the sale of those goggles going to go through the roof I after think the, so, yeah. <laughs> this film. Even the cinema and Rudy's like, where can we get those, Mom? Really? Where can we, we get we them? Tried, by the way, we tried. I was like, Lazy Boy, 8 Ball, Ovaltine, Captain Midnight oh. Goggles. Nobody went, They're like, nobody wanted to make them. They're like, well, we'll see what happens with the movie. Once the movie comes out, then I think you might start seeing them. Can we talk about a couple of other composers you've worked yeah, with? Yeah, sure. Death Wish with Ludwig. God, who, Ludwig Gornson. Wow. Love, I mean, what you know, a genius, too. Oh, my God. I feel very lucky that I got to work with Ludwig. Yeah. What he's amazing. <laughs> he's such a cool dude. I mean, you know, he's like this 33-year-old Swedish guy. You know, he's also producing Childish Gambino. And Ludwig also has his own studio. And he's a really, really sweet guy. And he was incredible, you know. And again, the Death Wish score, we wanted something that didn't sound like any other movies that I had done or that he had done. And he just came up. It almost sounded electronic, but it was all live. It was just the most beautiful incredible score yeah and we recorded it down at sony and man it was it was something
sounds and says this is what i'm thinking and some of it was just completely from another planet that didn't <laughs> quite work and you know but he's very directable and a real real great collaborator and i loved it you know we just had a we, we could take the hip-hop music and blend it into the theme and you know i knew what what songs i was going to use for the chicago drill sound the sound of death wish and how we were going to incorporate that and how we were going to blend from ludwig's music yeah. and the blurring the line between score and sound design which i love um where he starts goes into the score and it just it, it should feel in death wish we wanted to have what started off as a normal score and as his mental state deteriorates the score gets crazier and crazier so we we really use the music to show the escalation of someone completely losing their mind which is what happens in the film and the kind of signature sound we call it the inception horn sound <laughs> when he becomes the grim reaper and goes out and kills <laughs> Uh, it was a pleasure yeah. and I love the music he's putting out I, love, I remember before Death Wish he, he went to Africa to research Black Panther and get all the sounds for that you know he takes it very very seriously yeah we spoke to Ryan on the show and, and he oh, went cool. into to great detail about the research that he did no he's, he's, in a, he's a real deal Ludwig he's a, I mean I, I feel very lucky that I've got to work with two very gifted composers and Manu Rivero who did Green Inferno and Knock Knock I thought did incredible scores he just like sits in the forest in spain at a piano and just does this incredible music and green inferno we recorded that with an orchestra in bratislava green inferno was this big jungle tribal sound <laughs> drums and all of that which is very very influenced by a composer named Roberto Donati yeah. who did the music for Umberto Lenzi for Cannibal Ferox and other films I was actually just with Fabio Ferizzi 
This is Lucio Fulci's composer. I was literally just texting him now. He's like, are you coming to Italy with the movie? And he came over to my house two weeks ago. It was a pleasure to finally meet him because I have so many of his scores from the Lucio Fulci movies. But you know, I really wanted a sound for Green Inferno that felt like a Fabio Fritzi, really like Fabio Fritzi's Zombie 2 score and Roberto Donati's Cannibal Ferox. It was a five hours of travel every day to get to and from the set. And we would get on these canoes, go up this river. And we were really in the Amazon, farther than anyone had taken a film crew before. So we all had our music. And I was listening to the Roberto Donati's Cannibal Ferox score. Just kind of visualizing the movie. Because, you know, you have to, like, get up at five in the morning. And yeah. in the vans, then getting in the river and getting in the boats. And it was, it was, every, it was an adventure making that film. Then on Knock Knock, I wanted to make a much more contained spare, a much quiet, it's like a chamber piece almost, almost like a play. It's like a chess match with these these three characters in this house, you know, after being in the jungle with hundreds of extras. And it's like, let's just see the challenge, one drop of blood, three characters in a house and building the tension. And I really, really was into David Shire's score for the conversation. And I love that, that beautiful, beautiful piano. And so that's what I said to Mano. I was like, I want a score that feels like the the David Shire. And it's it's let's not do a lot of instruments. Let's not record it with an orchestra. Let's keep it to just a few instruments. 
because there's just only a couple of characters. It doesn't feel right to have a huge orchestral score for this movie. And I think he just he did a magnificent, beautiful, elegant score. Both the scores that Manu did, uh, I think he's a very kind of underrated composer. For what he did for Crane Inferno and Knock Knock were magnificent. Where did the the relationship with scores start for you in terms of when you were started creating films? Has it always been there? Has it always been always. something you've always. listened to? I was always into the music. I mean, I collected soundtracks for a long time. I mean, I, I had. I mean, it started with Star Wars when you're a kid. But I remember when I was gosh, probably 16 or 17 years old, VCRs came out with cable and I was able to run a cable box into the VCR and then take RCA wires and take the VCR into a boom box and I could audio record sound without putting a microphone up to the television. I could have perfect audio from a movie. So I would audio tape movies. Now, it was Caddyshack, Hamburger the Motion Picture, <laughs> Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross, it would be anything. Yellow but Submarine, we would, I believe. Blues Brothers, we, oh, would, yeah. we would sit and play driving to school and going on long car trips. I would play movies. And that was a lot of the way, like movies like Zapped or some 80s cable movie, where, you know, where I, you couldn't find the music. A lot of it, you know, you're just, you know, now you people that kind of rip it and put it on YouTube. But that was how I listened to music is I would learn the movies by heart just from listening to them over and over. So my relationship with write, when I started writing movies, I have playlists of writing music, but when I'm really writing a movie, I have to put on a score of a movie that's in the mood of what I'm writing. And that like, if I'm writing something like I'm writing a cop movie, it's nowhere near complete. It's in stages and pieces. Wow. But I want it to be like an Italian poliziotta. So I listen to Stelvio Cipriani's music or Maurizio and Guido De Angelis. And if I'm writing a giallo film, I listen to the... I mean, I love Stelvio Cipriani's music and his, his score for Nightmare City. There's a lot of those, those old giallo films. Those are my favorite. DeAngelis Brothers, Morricone, Cipriani. Those are, that's the stuff that, like, that's my jam. And then also, I've been listening to a lot of uh, Nico Fidenko scores. He did a lot of the, the comedy of Sexy of the Italiana movies, a lot of Joe D'Amato movies. It's a movie called Orgasmo Nero 2. Like, <laughs> even these trashy movies, there's some amazing scores. Like, there's a French cannibal film. It's one of the worst movies ever made called Cannibal Terror. The score is so damn good to that movie.
you know, like uh, Sergio Martino's Island of the Fishmen. It's like, it's amazing. The score is incredible. love Luigi Cozzi's film Star Crash with John Barry's score that he then recycled for Out of Africa six years later and won the Oscar for it. It's interesting to think about those composers and how quickly they turned over those scores and to see, you know, where that music turned up again in different spots in their career. Like, I found a movie, oh, I want to say, it's not Bloody Birth, it's called, I, mean, I think it's The Initiation. The Initiation is filmed in the late 80s where a girl's going to do some college sorority thing, but she's also her twin sister who escaped the mental asylum. <laughs> okay. And the whole ending theme was the love theme from Cinema Paradiso. But, no. But Morricone didn't score... The initiation i was like it's like dun. it was like no 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 it was like it was amazing it's like i was like wait a minute why are we in cinema paradiso all of a sudden 
So I don't know if Marconi saw that movie, if that theme was there, or if it's just coincidence, but it's like, it's pretty uncanny. So I love when you find these gems of these movies. Hidden. And there's some weird theme in there, and it's just come out later in some other director's or composer's masterpiece. like making those connections i like being a detective of those things yeah. so listening to old scores is a real hobby of mine a real passion of mine and, and a lot i'll i've been looking for a rohir von Otterloo score for turkish delights the old verhoeven movie like there's a lot of these films that i'm just dying to find that music then i put david hess's music from last house on the left in yeah. cabin fever and the sorcery music from their film stunt rock the brian treachard smith but i put that in grindhouse i use john harrison's creep show score in my section of thanksgiving for grindhouse and then i use sorcery again in knock knock so i there's there's just some go-to scores that i love and i kind of have a list of kind of movie songs i don't know where they're gonna go but i was like oh man this is an amazing piece of music like i'd love to use marconi's exorcist 2 theme in a movie somewhere it's so nuts it's in all the in the trailer film. Yeah, the cop film is where I would use it. It's yeah. just so good. Eli, I feel like I really want to come and like probably go through your record collection because your knowledge and your passion for scores and soundtracks is infectious. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. I didn't even get to talk about Francesco Damasi's <laughs> New York Ripper theme, which is one of my <laughs> one of my favorite scores. But yeah, we could we could go on and on. This is it was Student a pleasure for me. I'm yeah. looking forward to it. Let's do it. Thanks, Eli. Cheers.
Tony score to Exorcist 2, that's magic and ecstasy. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with director Eli Roth. My huge thanks to Eli for taking the time to talk to us. His knowledge and love of score is quite staggering. The House with a Clock in Its Walls is on home entertainment formats now, with Nathan Barr's Wurlitzer-inspired score, available via our very good friends at Backlot Music. Head to edithbowman.com or iTunes to catch up on all of our previous episodes, and please do subscribe while you're there. And you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We're at Soundtracking UK for all the latest goings-on. Next up, it's another Soundtracking Live as we bring you my recent conversation with Andy Serkis and Nitin Sony from the British Film Institute in London. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.